Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. I'm your host, Nino Scalia, and our guest today is Helen Andrews, senior editor at the American Conservative. Previously, she was the managing editor of the Washington Examiner magazine and a 2018 Robert Novak Journalism Fellow. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, First Things, the Claremont Review of Books, and elsewhere. She joins us today to discuss her insightful and wonderfully entertaining new book, Boomers, The Men and Women Who Promised Freedom and Delivered Disaster. Helen Andrews, welcome to Madison's Notes. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start at the beginning. Between 1945 and 1964, the baby boomers were born. Describe the world they were born into. In the United States, they were born into an era of rare prosperity. Um, It was sort of the the peak of not just the 20th century economic prosperity for the United States, but almost for all of our entire history. Um, And uh, socially, America was extremely cohesive. Basically, all of the indicators that you might want to look at for how well society is doing, membership in voluntary organizations, church attendance, you know, every metric that you might possibly want to look at was at the very, very top of its 20th century peak. So the baby boomers were born into a really well-functioning world. Uh, and, and then they grew up and put a, put a stop to all that. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll get to how they put a stop to it in a second. I'm going to turn to the subtitle of the book here, The Boomers Promised Freedom. You just told us about this era of rare prosperity, and yet they didn't think they were free. They weren't pleased with the status quo. Why not? Well, they were born into, many of them, happy, stable, suburban families that were in the prosperous middle class. And that just didn't leave them with a whole lot of challenges to face. So instead of focusing on any kind of adversity that they might encounter uh, in their own lives, they decided to start complaining about the blandness of everything Hmm. and and the monotone, dismal, boringness of suburban life. That's a a real keynote in all of the 60s new left tracts. Um, So they decided that prosperity and peace and order were the natural order of things. And so in order to provide themselves with a little entertainment to break the monotony of suburban life, they could uh, introduce some disruptions and mix things up. But they lacked any sense that by mixing things up and disrupting the world, they might actually break things uh, rather than just, you know, create interesting amusement. Which is fascinating to me. They were surrounded by people who had seen that leisure and peace and order was obviously not the natural order of things. Did they not receive that lesson from their elders? I think the problem was that that lesson was coming from their elders. One constant theme that you see 
in boomer rebellion, not just in the United States, but across the Western world, was a generational conflict. I mean, the, the reason why I wrote this book in generational terms is because that's how the boomers thought of themselves. When they came of age in the 60s, they thought our parents are the old generation. They represent an old, stale way of doing things. We, the young people, are going to take the world into a, a completely new era. And that's because of the demographic fact that the baby boom was a baby boom. Uh, there were just uh, They were the largest generation. And so you had vastly more college students as a proportion of the population than you had ever had at any other time in American history. Um, so they just got a, a really exaggerated sense of their own importance uh, due to their sheer demographic heft. So a combination of uh, a cultural fascination with youth and young people as pathbreakers into a, a new era and a demographic bulge that put a lot of emphasis on this particular young generation led them to really just disregard anything that old people were telling them simply on the basis that it was coming from the mouths of old people. So that's why they didn't listen to their parents because they were their parents. <laughs> um, okay. And so these boomers, they promise freedom. They promise freedom for everyone. And not only do they fall short of that very lofty goal, they deliver disaster. In your words, they passed on debt, inequality, moribund churches, and a broken democracy, end quote. We may have some listeners who are a little bit surprised by that. So, disaster? No, 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 no. The 50s and 60s, this was not an era of good feelings. People were not equal. People are much more equal today. We have televisions. We have iPhones. We're wealthy. What is this disaster you're speaking of, Helen? Uh, a great, if you wanted to put the boomer legacy into one sentence, you would say that they were institution destroyers. Mm -hmm. um, they looked at everything that might constrain individual choice, whether that be a family or a tradition or a church or uh, really anything constraining, um, any kind of rules. And they said, no, that's not for us. We were individuals. And that's what's individual choice is the maximally most important thing. And it's very easy to point to tragic examples where institutions constrain individual choice in a way that harms an individual. Uh, you know, you can point to a woman who's unhappy in her marriage and the boomers say, well, wouldn't it be so much better if this woman were free uh, to get a divorce and to liberate herself from her terrible husband? Um, the problem is that the effect of the boomer revolution in family relations, to stick with that example, has led to a demolition of the family as an institution, not just for women who were uh, constrained within uh, uh, bad, bad or toxic marriages, but for everybody. Mm. And it's really harder to point to the diffuse damage that the demise of the family as an institution did. So when the, when the boomers were rebelling against the family, they could point to really vivid examples of what they were talking about and why it was so important to liberate individuals. Today, if you're a millennial, you're growing up in the least married generation in American history, and clearly fewer and fewer people in the millennial generation are getting married, uh, are having children. And so there's a clear indication and a, a nagging sense among a lot of millennials that something has gone wrong in the, the way of the American family, but it doesn't really lend itself to the same kinds of vivid examples that the boomers pointed to. So that's why they wanted liberation and they got it. And what resulted was a chaos and an anarchy um, where these old institutions just kind of ceased to exist. Mm 
but it's a lot harder for millennials to put their finger on what it is that they're missing, what, what, the, what they need, what they're lacking, um, because that's the thing about chaos. It's, it's really diffuse and hard to describe. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's kind of one reason why some people might not immediately grasp all of the ways that the boomer legacy has been damaging as opposed to just liberating. Sure, understood. And in writing the book, in writing Boomers, you emulate the English writer and critic Lytton Strachey in his book, Eminent Victorians. You profile six people in Boomers, Steve Jobs, Aaron Sorkin, Jeffrey Sachs, Camille Paglia, Al Sharpton, Sonia Sotomayor. So maybe first we could go here. Could you say a word about why you chose to write the book this way? Uh, As a reader, I very often got frustrated with things that were written about the baby boomers or any generation because it was all so generalized. Hmm. And when you're making broad sweeping generalizations about groups of millions of people, it's very easy to lose track of what you're talking about. Hmm. Um, And just as a writer, you always want to stay as grounded in specificity as you can. So in order to write about the boomers as a generation, I decided the best way to keep the project from getting away from me uh, was to ground it in individuals. So the hardest part was to pick six individuals who I thought would be universally recognized as emblematic boomers. Hmm. I mean, there, there are people who can quibble with various generalizations that you might want to make about the boomers as a generation, but I think most people will acknowledge that you know Jeffrey Sachs is very boomerish. <laughs> So that once I had a good a good list of individuals, I knew that that was the way I wanted to approach approach the topic. Okay, and let's turn to these individuals, the six horsemen and horsewomen of boomerism. Why these six? Jobs, Sorkin, Sachs, Paglia, Sharpton, Sotomayor, and what is it about these six that so nicely exemplifies boomerism? The classic boomer flaw is hubris and idealism. So these are people who set out to do great, wonderful things for humanity, but whose ultimate legacy is somehow ironic in that it was ironically contrary to their intentions. Um, So that meant, first of all, that I didn't want to pick anybody who was a clown or a buffoon. These were all people who were genuinely well-intentioned. And for most of them, they're people who, at the end of the day, I I admire in many ways. Um, So somebody like Steve Jobs, shaped the American computer industry in a deeply boomerish way. Uh, He he single-handedly transformed the American computer industry from something that looked like the IBM model, where it was a communal model and you would have one computer per office uh, and a lot of individuals would share one mainframe computer to an individualized model because he thought computers were about liberating human creativity. So the fact that he managed to have such a um, radical transformational effect on what computers look like uh, in the United States and across the world, that's a sign of his greatness. Like Mm -hmm. not every entrepreneur could have transformed his industry the way that Steve Jobs did. Uh, But the irony comes in when you look at the effect of having a computer in everybody's pocket, which if you're a millennial looks like an Uberized economy Uh, where everybody's employment is a lot more precarious and a tinderized romantic field um, where people hop from uh, relationship to relationship rather than any kind of stability or courtship. 
And also it looks like rampant uh, addiction to video games and computer games, yeah. um, which is just, uh, if you're young, you, if you're, especially if you're a young woman looking around at the, the you know, male dating market, the fact that they are all seemingly addi- addicted <laughs> to various stupid computer games is a serious problem for you yeah. if you're looking to you know, pair off with and marry an adult rather than an adolescent. So yeah, Steve Jobs, really, really great businessman. Um, but his very greatness shaped the computer industry in ways that, from a millennial's perspective, don't look that great. Sure. I'm going to get myself in trouble with this next line of questioning, but here it comes anyway. Before reading the book, I listened to a couple of interviews you did about the book, and I heard you say time and again that you wanted to choose people that you didn't have contempt for, and you just said there, people that you genuinely admired, and that comes through in the book. You're honest and fair, charitable even, in dealing with these people, and that's a great credit to you. Um, you depict them as tragic figures, right? Seeds of greatness and good intentions, but ultimately doing, in some cases, very great harm. So let me ask you about one of these people in particular, Al Sharpton. In what ways is he a tragic figure? Hmm. He's, uh, he's kind of caught between two worlds. Uh, there was a, a golden era of civil rights in the United States. And that was the 1960s. And that's the era of Dr. King and the Civil Rights Act uh, and, and sort of Selma and all the great civil rights victories. And then you look at this, what passes for a civil rights movement today and it's people like Black Lives Matter um, and cheering on the abolition of the police. And Al Sharpton is kind of caught in the middle. So he's a transitional figure. And so his career has in many ways traced the decline of civil rights, Hmm. Uh, but he still has one foot in that golden era. Very unusually for a boomer, Al Sharpton actually participated in the golden era of civil rights. Um, He was a a, a youth preacher. So he was uh, hanging out with people like Adam Clayton Powell uh, in the 1960s when he was a tween, you know, in elementary school, he was a, a public figure in his own little world of Brooklyn. So he still has some memory of back when civil rights was a, a, um, a much more noble cause than it is today. Uh, and, and for all of the corruption <laughs> that has come to characterize his career since then, um, he still, there's, you can still see flashes of the good old days in him. Uh, and, and the other redeeming quality that Al Sharpton has that conservatives especially ought to appreciate is that he's a, a genuine Democrat in mm. that he has a real following among people. Um, you, you look at the Black Lives Matter activists today, and they're, on the one hand, completely creatures of social media. Um, so they, they, they're, they're following, their, their status as leaders does not come from their ability to actually have you know, actual followers who care about what they say. Um, whereas that's not true of Al Sharpton. He, he really does, he has stayed grounded in his community uh, in a way that keeps him uh, authentic in a way that somebody like DeRay McKesson is not. So the boomers grow up in this, this era of rare prosperity. Families are whole, churches are full, etc. But there is one ugly scar, the Vietnam War. What effect did the Vietnam War have on the boomers? The Vietnam War was bad. Uh, 
and the draft in particular was bad. So the anti-war movement was of all the various flavors of radicalism floating around in the 60s, um, probably the, the most morally defensible. But one criticism that you frequently heard from the right during the 1960s was that anti-war or supposedly anti-war activists hmm. like Tom Hayden and Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were simply using the anti-war cause as a front in order to attract well-intentioned, idealistic young liberals to their cause in order to get more support for their real political goal, which was not ending the Vietnam War, but radical revolution. And I think looking at the careers of people like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin after the draft was ended, you would have to say that those conservatives were correct. Hmm. And actually that you would you could easily come to that conclusion looking at their careers before they arrived at the anti-war cause. Uh, basically everyone in the Chicago Seven, so Hoffman, Rubin, Hayden, Rennie Davis, uh, only arrived at anti-war as their political cause of choice uh, after trying a few others. They, they tried economic revolution and being communists, or they tried racial revolution and being radical civil rights activists and eventually black power activists. And it was only after their experiments with those radical causes failed to attract any popular support that they said, oh, okay, well, I guess anti-war seems to be the flavor of the month. That's what I'll do. Hmm. Um, so these were people who genuinely wanted to overthrow the United States government and the American way of life. Uh, and the anti-war cause was for them just kind of a convenient pretext in order to get more respectable people on their side. Sure. Um, so yes, the anti-war movement was correct on the issue. They were right that the Vietnam War was bad and the draft was bad. Um, but the people at the time who accused anti-war activists of simply using that good cause as a cover for more subversive intentions were also correct. Sure. Subversive intentions. <laughs> In their heyday, the boomers terrorized college campuses. They burned sofas, vandalized buildings, did drugs, had sex, even took university buildings by gunpoint. They put today's campus activists to shame. Now these boomers run the college campuses and seem less like freewheeling hippie revolutionaries, free speech and free love, and more like authoritarians. What happened? Yeah, that's, uh, I asked myself as I was starting to write this book, why the millennial hostility to boomers was so acute and why, why we were so angry with them. Uh, it wasn't just that they'd messed up the world. It's clearly there are a lot of, there's a lot of millennial resentment uh, against baby boomers. And the number one reason I came to realize was that the boomers continue to pose as if they are rebels and anti-establishment when today they are the establishment. Um, so it's, it was inevitable once they won their victory that they would come to occupy positions of authority. But 
the baby boomer ethos does not acknowledge the legitimacy of authority. Like they don't, they don't think authority is a good thing. Um, so they have to ec- exercise authority without admitting to themselves that that's what they're doing. Um, so it, it used to be that the worst thing about that was the hypocrisy. And that is still pretty bad. But today, the inability of boomers to actually exercise authority has a worse effect than mere hypocrisy. It is that now millennials are staging an anti-establishment rebellion of their own on behalf of wokeness. And this is why you see at Princeton, among many other places, um, woke student activists making extravagant demands of liberal boomer um, authority figures uh, in the school, in the university administration, or in companies at places like the New York Times and Google. And the boomers in management or in the administration are completely hobbled by their own inability to say, you have to do what I say because I'm the boss. I'm an authority figure. And that you know comes along with a little something called authority. So yes, it's very cute that you're rebelling and you have these demands, but I, I decline to meet your demands. And there's not a lot you can do about it after that because that's what being an authority figure means. No, they have to coddle these woke people who are challenging their authority. Uh, and it also doesn't help that the wokesters are sort of pretending to simply believe in the logical extension of the left-wing idealism that the boomers themselves profess to believe in. Um, So yeah, it was always inevitable that the boomers would come to occupy positions of authority. I thought that growing up into authority would go along with kind of recognizing that exercising authority and being in a position of leadership is is okay. (laughs) You don't actually have to be a rebel all of the time. Sometimes you can be the establishment and that's not intrinsically a bad thing. Uh, but it has not gone along with that sort of kind of maturity. So yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty bad, pretty bad on the boomers part. (laughs) Um, in your own words, the boomers quote, inherited prosperity, social cohesion, and functioning institutions, end quote. Like we've said, churches were full, men bold with friends and the middle class thrived. A certain sort of conservative points to the 50s, points to this time, and says, to this we would return. And yet the generation that inherited that world threw it away without so much as blinking an eye. What lesson might there be in that for conservatives today? That it's a lot easier to destroy something than to build it back up again. (laughs) Although, uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, When I talk to millennials today and say, okay, guys, you know, it's clearly our job to rebuild some of the things that the boomers threw away, not realizing how fragile they were. Hmm. Um, Well, one example is it's hard for people today to get their hands around just how much of an adult's life in the 1950s was spent in sex-exclusive spaces. Like if you were a man living in a suburb, a lot of your time would be spent at an all-male rotary club or an all-male drinking club where you would go and and go to the bar with your friends. Uh, Or the Boy Scouts would, back in those days, still be full of (laughs) boys. Um, And the same was true for women. Um, And then sometime in the 1970s, 
feminist lawyers systematically sued all kinds of sex exclusive institutions in order to integrate them and force them to admit women. And I guess some of those lawsuits were cool and noble, but when you look around today, you realize that if, if you say that men don't really know how to be men anymore and people are not really mature anymore, or it's really hard for people to make friends and a lot of millennials are lonely and atomized. One of the reasons is that all male and all male, fe- all male and all female institutions and spaces serve a really, really crucial social function. And almost every civilization in history has had them in one form or another. And it's really, really weird that we don't. So if you're a millennial looking to rebuild civil society, one of the things you might want to do is recreate all male and all female groups and clubs and institutions. And the problem is today that that's basically illegal. (laughs) Basically, any kind of sex exclusive institution you want to found is vulnerable to a lawsuit. Um, So it's a, a lesson for millennials that we need to rebuild things and to the boomers that they shouldn't destroy things so cavalierly. But there are some obstacles in the way of rebuilding that the boomers threw up that will need to come down before the millennials can start on the hard work of rebuilding things, which itself is a really tough task and would be quite sufficiently hard enough, even without those obstacles still in the way. You mentioned at one point in the book that uh, the boomers were lucky in a certain way because although they've fallen away from religion, they had seen it in practice before growing up. So they know what it's like to return to that in times of need. We millennials don't have that luxury. So I'm curious, do you think we're up to the task of rebuilding or could we not possibly rebuild anything because we don't know what it should look like? Yeah, I once applied for a job at a Catholic institution, which I will not name, and uh, which I did not get. And I think the moment that I didn't get the job was when everyone around the table realized that if they hired me, it would be an institution entirely of converts. (laughs) And you know what? I was really desperate for the job at the time, but I had to acknowledge that having a Catholic institution full of nothing but converts is actually pretty bad. You should have somebody on staff. (laughs) who has some kind of, you know, instinctual memory of what it's like to grow up with this stuff, Um, because it's really hard. Uh, I think, uh, you know, something that can, something that can be a native language for your children will always be a second language to you Mm. if you only learned it as an adult. Um, So, yeah, it's a, a friend of mine from college converted to Christianity but had a really difficult time praying and learning to pray. And it was because she said, you know, I'm 20 years old and I have literally never seen anybody pray. Hmm. That would have been impossible in a day when there was at the very least, you know, you would have said a prayer or a Bible verse in homeroom. You know, it's just unthinkable that somebody could reach the age of 20, never having seen anybody pray. But today there are a lot of millennials in, in the same situation. I was in the same situation uh, when I turned 20. And so what she, what she did was had a, a Christian friend, a cradle Christian friend, as she put it, get God on the line. For 
So it's like you, you dial the phone, you start praying and then say, okay, God, now that I've got you, I'm going to hand you over <laughs> to my friend here. And that that somehow made it feel real and legitimate for her. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, no, there, <laughs> there are some weird hacks like that, that I think millennials will have to do. Um, but you know, that's the thing about discontinuity. Um, all it takes is one generation to kind of bridge that gap and get the continuity going again. Yeah. Uh, and so hopefully our children will not have to be in the same difficult boat. Yeah. Uh, returning to the boomers in positions of authority, and I'm putting on a critic hat here for a second, which it doesn't fit me as well as it fits you, but we'll give it a try. COVID seems to have brought out the worst of the boomers. They're credentialed, smug, narcissistic technocrats who, despite their intentions, which I'm not sure are entirely good, get more wrong than they get right. Has COVID brought an end to the reign of the boomers at last? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think COVID proved that the boomers are going to cling to power as long as they possibly can and that they, they are undislodgeable. Hmm. Because millennials had basically nothing to fear from COVID. If you are in the millennial age bracket, you are not in a high-risk group. I mean, if you're in that age bracket, it basically is just the flu for you. Um, you are not at a high risk of mortality. So all of the sacrifices that you made were sacrifices on behalf of other people. And the millennials were the people who sacrificed the most. If you look at or if you looked at unemployment graphs in, say, June of 2020, and it was, you know, what age groups, uh, what proportion of each age bracket had lost a job. Um, for people in their 40s and 50s uh, and early 60s, they most, most, most of those people in those age brackets who were employed were still employed, even during the lockdowns. It was the young people who were more likely to have gig work jobs, or service economy jobs, or to be millennials who were low on the totem pole and likely to be last hired, first fired, uh, the millennials were about twice as likely to be unemployed due to the lockdowns. So we sacrificed the most and gained the least during the COVID lockdowns. And yet there was no rebellion. You did not see millennials take to the streets and say, screw you, you can stay inside if you want, but I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go earn a living and not have to move back in with my parents or whatever. You didn't see that. Yes. So if, if anything in the world should have prodded millennials into finally saying enough is enough, boomers, you are not going to ruin our lives again after the 2008 financial crisis and everything else, it should have been the COVID lockdowns, and it didn't. So if millennials didn't rebel against that, I don't think they ever will. <laughs> <laughs> Quoting you and boomers here. Empire is the oldest and most common type of polity in world history, but it took only a few generations of idealistic Americans to declare it comprehensively prohibited for all time, end quote. Yet we are still a superpower, so we create, as you call it, an empire without the bad stuff. The result, quoting you again, the contortions we undergo to make our global hegemony less imperial only makes us less effective and frequently makes us look absurd, end quote. Okay, Helen, two things here. First, please say a little more about our empire without the bad stuff and then respond to this charge. 
Helen Andrews, senior editor at the American Conservative. The United States is an empire and we should do a better job at it. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, uh, okay. So to, to back up and answer your, your first question, um, after the fall of the Soviet Union and when we were the only superpower, uh, and actually during the Cold War, uh, America had many client states in all but name. So places where we nominally respected their sovereignty, but if anything happened in those countries that we didn't like, we felt perfectly empowered to take whatever steps we needed in order to put a stop to whatever communist leader they had just elected or whatever bad decision uh, that country had, had foolishly decided to make against our uh, US interests. And that's kind of fine, right? That's, that's what superpowers do. And as long as you exercise the responsibilities of superpower along with its, its prerogatives, then that's not too bad. The problem is that um, rather than feeling responsible for our client states in the way that the empires of the 19th century did for their colonial possessions, we kind of, yeah, it's uh, the way we pushed them around, I don't think was in any way intrinsically more respectful hmm. than the explicitly colonial relationships between I don't know, Britain and Malawi in the 19th century. Um, if you, you know, the US record in Latin America is a clear example of that. Um, so <laughs> yeah, you, you bring up the fact that I work at the American conservative, which I am very proud to say was founded against the Iraq war to protest against uh, the direction that George W. Bush was taking the Republican party. And no one is happier or more vindicated at the news that the United States is finally going to be pulling out of Afghanistan. But I think that that pleasure at seeing America finally leave is entirely compatible with the observation that I make in this book and in my defense of empire as a concept that if we wanted to uh, protect women's rights in Afghanistan, the way to do that is to go in and actually run the country for a while um, and, you know, educate them and, and enact, you know, put in, put in place a government run by us that will do whatever kind of women's rights, trans rights, if you want to protect them in Afghanistan, whatever. Um, but don't do this halfway house version of imperialism called nation building, which is just the worst of both worlds. So when you do the worst of both worlds, as we've been doing for the past 20 years, uh, you get something that is inferior to empire, rightly understood, but also in inferior to just leaving, which, thank goodness, is what we're finally going to do now. Yeah, no, I think that makes good sense. Uh, the past year or so, specifically the riots in the summer of uh, 2020, has garnered comparisons to the 60s, both positive and negative, right? Negative because riots are not good positive because we got over that unrest and we'll get over this unrest. You're not so optimistic. Yeah. Uh, I think that the 1960s really fooled a lot of people in the U.S. into thinking it can't happen here, that street protest need not or is not 
the prelude to genuine instability. And, you know, we look back at people like Abby Hoffman, who genuinely did want to overthrow the U.S. government and think, well, wasn't that cute? You know, <laughs> oh, he had a little protest over by the Pentagon. How adorable. Um, and it, it caused us to really believe that America was immune to any kind of unrest developing into something more serious. Mm-hmm. But the reason why the 60s protests were so ultimately innocuous depended on a lot of factors that are just no longer in place today. The first and most important is that people who were in their 20s in the late 1960s, once they grew into their 30s and decided they were kind of over their revolutionary phase, graduated into an extremely prosperous economy these were college-educated people primarily who had been involved in street protests in the 60s revolution. So it was an economy especially favorable to people with college educations. Uh, so once they decided to sell out, you know, America was buying. So mm. they, they sold out in, in very propitious circumstances. That is not what is going to await the millennials in Antifa today. So... The best cure for being a revolutionary is to have, you know, things, you know, revolutionaries are people with nothing to lose, right? So the best way to get somebody to stop being a revolutionary is to give them something to lose, have them get married, have them get a house and a job and property, and then they no longer want to, you know, they feel some investment in society. If millennials are going to continue to have you know, nearly a quarter, you know, or or huge slices of that demographic not be married and not have kids, not have a stable job, but instead have a gig economy job, then they are going to continue and persist in the ideal revolutionary condition of not having anything to lose. Um, So that means that they, they may well turn into hardened revolutionaries, which is, which is not really what you want for social stability. Quoting you here. David Sarnoff's great communications medium hasn't made the world better informed. It has just made us feel as if we were. Looking at the consequences of television, from politics to journalism, one starts to wonder whether pseudo-knowledge might be worse than no knowledge at all, end quote. Some listeners and some readers may come across that pseudo-knowledge and say, well, what do you mean? I have all the information in the world at my fingertips. What do you mean? I don't really have any knowledge. (laughs) That quote that you just uh, mentioned is from the chapter on Aaron Sorkin and his, it focuses on his most famous show, The West Wing. And one of the observations that was really jarring to me about the TV show, The West Wing, once I realized it, was that if you went, if you go back and look at the pilot of the West Wing, it absolutely would not work if you tried to broadcast that pilot today, because the whole first five minutes of the episode depends on a joke that nobody today would get or think was funny. The joke in the pilot of the West Wing is pretty straightforward. It shows all of our main characters who are going to get to know and love over the course of the next four seasons being relayed a message. And the message is, POTUS was in a bicycle accident. And the joke at the time that that was broadcast uh, in the late 90s was that all of the people passing along this message didn't know what POTUS 
meant. So POTUS, you have a friend named POTUS? What kind of name is POTUS? Is that German? What? Of course, today, my mother knows POTUS. She knows FLOTUS. She knows SCOTUS. All of the, <laughs> all of the abbreviations. Um, you know, there are just so many aspects of the political game that the average person on the street today is familiar with that they weren't in 1998. But as someone who lives in Washington and works in Washington, I see all of the sophistication that everybody puts so much faith in, you know, that, oh, such and such a press release was designed to take down this department and it's all inside baseball. And all of the stuff that fills the many, many hours of CNN and MSNBC. And I think, are we really so much better off now hmm. compared to the time when people didn't know what POTUS was? And I think, no, this is all a very superficial kind of sophistication. So that's, that's the, the best way to really have an immediate visceral grasp of just how insubstantial all your all the supposed information floating around your brain is you know all the all the stuff that you ingest from msnbc or fox news for that matter yeah um just think if you were to go back and talk to somebody who didn't know what potus was you know what are you really that much more informed than that west wing viewer circa 1998 or do you just have a lot of flashy verbal tricks that you now know and i and i think it's the latter how how do we get real knowledge other than reading the american conservative which i which i do genuinely recommend all listeners to do but how do we get real knowledge is it possible anymore or is everything around us just flashy uh flashy clickbait uh, i hate to say it because as a journalist it's my job to go get knowledge and relay it to others but i think the answer might be that it's, it's just almost impossible to get it anymore. Um, another, another point I make comparing Aaron Sorkin shows at the time they were broadcast to Aaron Sorkin shows now is looking at his first show, which was called Sports Night, which is really great. Um, I mean, I don't care at all about sports of any kind, but I love Sports Night. It's just the wittiest sitcom ever broadcast on, on broadcast television. But in order to research that show, they actually let Aaron Sorkin, you know, go to the ESPN mothership and look around Sports Center and talk to the people who work at Sports Center. Um, and he got to know a little bit about the behind the scenes, you know, uh, obstacles that a character on that TV show might face. Today, if you wanted to research a sitcom about e an ESPN show, you would not be allowed to simply float around in the background at SportsCenter. No, there would be an ESPN PR person glued to your side at all times. And if you sat down for an interview with somebody who worked at ESPN, trying to pick their brain to learn what things motivated them or what obstacles they encountered in their day, that same PR person would be in that interview making sure that that ESPN employee did not go off message. Yeah. So if you look at politics in the 1990s, and you go back and look at debates or clips or panel shows, you can still see some rough edges 
And in some ways, we look back at those clips and we think, oh, how unsophisticated they were. Hmm. But really, it was just that the the last vestiges of spontaneity had not yet been completely eradicated (laughs) from all public speech, uh, whereas now they have. Um, So I think there, yeah, there are people in every organization whose job it is to manage information. And I think that that makes it really more difficult today to get at the real truth of things than it has ever been. Um, Yeah, ever before. Yeah. Helen, a long wind up for this question, so I apologize, but it's something I found myself thinking about a lot while reading the book. Uh, You write of Camille Paglia that her tragedy was that she, quote, toyed with forces that were much more dangerous than she imagined them to be, and they turned on her in the end, end quote. Okay, let's take that and add this to it from your chapter on Al Sharpton. America's race problem survives, quote, not because we are psychologically too guilt-ridden to deal with it, but because the people invested in it gained too much from it to let it go away, end quote. A few days ago, a police officer in Columbus, Ohio, shot and killed a 16-year-old girl wielding a knife and threatening unarmed people around her. The girl was black, the officer white. Immediately, Celebrities like LeBron James, Senator Cory Booker, the White House press secretary, journalists, so on and so forth, immediately placed the incident within their preferred frame of reference, white cop murders black person. It seems like you've given us both an answer and a warning. They do this because they gain from it, but they don't realize how dangerous these forces they're playing with are. Yes, uh, I think that's entirely correct. Um, uh, I work in journalism, so the variation or the, the branch of the Black Lives Matter movement that I have observed most closely have been the incidents within the field of journalism. And in those cases, you see, I, you know, in the last year, you see dozens of instances of veteran journalists at places like the New York Times or at uh, glossy magazines who lost their jobs because of some impolitic statement that they'd made uh, or some statement that could in some contorted way be construed as somehow racially insensitive or insensitive in some other way. And in every one of those dozens of cases, I look at the people ginning up outrage and I think I am almost certain that this person knows that the charge they are going with is completely spurious. Yeah. They, this person cannot actually believe that the person who's about to lose their job is actually a racist. Um, they would have to be extremely stupid to believe that. And, and maybe they are. I think some of them are. But a lot of them, I think you can't possibly be. But the reason why you do it is because the person who's losing their job has one of the very few, you know, jobs in journalism where you can still make a living. Mm -hmm. So you knock off the person who's ahead of you in the org chart and then everybody else moves up one. So, of course, why (laughs) wouldn't you pretend to be aghast and outraged? Um, But by I, I think there were a lot of people, especially in the Democratic Party, who thought that ginning up outrage 
on BLM lines was something they could just turn off once Biden won the election. And I think we are going to see this summer that that is not the case, that they have unleashed a genie uh, that's going to be very hard to put back into the bottle. So yeah, no, that's a diagnosis and also a warning. As we draw to a close here, you and I are conservatives. We, we like old things best of all. So it might seem odd to some of our listeners that we're here bashing our forebearers. <laughs> Most of our boomer listeners have already ripped their earphones out and started drafting me a nasty email. So let's, let's look for some reconciliation here. Did the boomers do any good? <laughs> this is a tough one. Uh, some of the music was okay. They did terrible things to Hollywood. I, I think there. I can't think. Boomer cinema is is not not good. Yeah. Um, but the music was all right. No, I, I. It's ironic when boomers complain uh, or lodge against me the charge of you know insufficient filial piety, yeah. because the boomers were the people who first started this idea that young people don't need to care what older people say that you know there's there's no value in wisdom it's much better to be young and fresh and idealistic um so yeah no it's <laughs> any other generation would be able to get away with complaining about the young people not respecting their elders enough but i think the boomers of all people can't they can't get away with that <laughs> Fair enough. Not quite a conciliatory tone, but we're getting there. Um, let me ask you this. In working on this book, how did your opinion of the boomers change? Were they worse than you expected, better than you expected? Do you have some pity for them? Yeah, I came to respect them a lot more. Hmm. Um, I think I, I have a, a much better sense of what they thought they were doing um, and, and of the, the value of, of some of their idealism. Um, you know, somebody, somebody like Jeffrey Sachs is in any other era, he would have been a genuinely imperial adventurer. You know, he, he, he's obviously somebody who has a great intellect and also a great spirit of adventure. So he could have sat in his Harvard ivory tower, you know, gone the Larry Summers path and been a power broker in Washington, but something in him spurred him to seek further afield and to go to the third world and to apply his trade as an economist there. And I, I like that, that's very appealing. Um, you know, somebody who's not content just to sit up in an office and make a million dollars at Harvard, but who wants to have, have some spirit of adventure. And I think that it is just his bad luck that instead of being born in 1830, when he could have joined the Indian civil service and been you know, the, the righteous and well-beloved governor of some Indian province in you know, the days of the Raj, he was born in an era when the imperial trade has been denigrated and devalued. So he had to channel those noble impulses and personality traits into just a really, really crooked and backward kind of parody hmm. of what he, what in any other age he should have been or would have been. Hmm. So that's the, the poignancy that I see in so many boomer stories. I see in any other age, 
you could have been a great hero or a great scholar or a great explorer or a titan of industry or anything, but you had the bad luck to be born between 1945 and 1964 (laughs) at a time when civilization was coming apart. And so instead of being a great hero, you were a villain. And that's, that's sad. Yeah. One last question for you, Helen. The year is 2050. Helen Andrews has just released another best-selling book, Millennials, The Men and Women Who Promised Blank and Delivered Blank. (laughs) Promised healing and delivered division. Yeah. Because I think a lot of millennials see what the boomers did wrong and want to rebel against that. But that's, you know, it's the nature of a pendulum that you swing too far in the other direction. Our guest today has been Helen Andrews. We've been discussing her wonderful, wonderful new book, Boomers, the men and women who promised freedom and delivered disaster. I can't recommend the book highly enough. I read it in one afternoon and you will too. It's a lot of fun. So Helen, thank you so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Thank you. There you have it, Madisonians, Helen Andrews on Boomers. You've already heard me sing praises of the book, so I won't add anything else here other than to say there's a link to the book in the show notes. So go get your copy or copies today. It'll be a great gift for that special boomer in your life. And remember, if you haven't already, please be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes and maybe even a nice review if you're feeling generous. It's hugely helpful in getting the show to new listeners. Either way, we appreciate you joining us for this conversation with Helen Andrews, and I hope to have you back with us next time, here on Madison's Notes.